how do you humanize your digital? And if you crack that code, you could have the best of both worlds. The economy doesn't stop in a recession. People are still spending. It's a question of what are they spending it on, where are they spending it, how are they spending it. Disruptions sometimes create temporary markets. There's something that everybody suddenly needs now, but then when things go back to normal, they're not going to need as much of. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast. This is Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well. So this is our episode 16. And since we've been doing it every other week, I'll let people do the math. But for those of you who've been with us, thank you. This is a bit of a small milestone. And we look forward to 160, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the next milestone. We do like powers of two. Right. That's right. Of course. Yes, yes. All right. So one of the topics that we were talking about was how do you do marketing and business management in times of hardship? First, it was COVID. Now it's inflation. Traditionally, it's business cycles. Let's talk about that a little. Well, I was struck by a tweet that somebody put out this week that said, we're heading into a colossal dark period in terms of of economics. I'm trying to think if there are good examples of brands and businesses who've come out of depressions or recessions, stronger, profitable, and popular. And I picked it out not necessarily because I fully agree with how dark this period we're coming into will be. We never know. But I think as marketers, we get confronted by these periods where everybody around us is shouting about the disaster ahead. You know, my kind of snarky comment a few years ago was what a financial reporter wouldn't kill for the opportunity to announce the arrival of the fourth horseman of the apocalypse. <laughs> um, you know, the press does live for dramatic announcements. They get eyeballs and people to read things. But at the same time, it's a really valid question. What happens in recessions and depressions? And how do you, with your own business or in your business, how do you make it through this stuff? The first thing I remember is early on in my career, when I started my company, we went through some difficult days. And I remember reading about Bill Bernbach, the great in advertising, who started his first job in 1933. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, my God, could you imagine starting your first job in the middle, in the Great Depression, in the early days of the Great Depression in the U.S.? Soup lines, horrible unemployment, all these kinds of things. And I think it reminded me that we have to be careful with these big, broad societal pronouncements about we are in a recession because what matters is our individual situation. And individual right. situations can be far different from these big economic shifts back and forth. I think what is true is no matter what you look at, there are always companies that did well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder why that is. Is that because they just got lucky or they were good at planning? They were more agile, sometimes a combination. And if that's true, then is it true that the opposite is the case for companies that did not do well? Did they just not plan right? So what's going on there? There's a lot going on there. A tremendous amount depends on your individual market within the economy. So for example, I started Atomic. We went through the dot-com bust in 2000. Then I was able to maintain the company through the 9-11 recession, through the Great Recession, 
And basically, we ended up doing well kind of through all those and coming out of the Great Recession in 2010, took off on our best run in our history. Now, you know, we could go back into all those details, but what I found is our specialty was the do-it-yourself market, the, you know, people buying things at Home Depot and Lowe's and hardware stores, and they have two sets of customers. So if you're Home Depot, you have a set of contractors who buy from you and you have home consumers that buy from you. What happens in a recession isn't that everybody stops spending, right? The economy doesn't stop in a recession or a depression. Mm -hmm. People are still spending. It's a question of what are they spending it on? Where are they spending it? How are they spending it? So for a uh, Home Depot and a Lowe's, as we go along through those, it turns out that people may not hire a contractor to redo the deck. They might do it themselves the deck continues to be redone. So what I've discovered was those stores have a tremendous resilience in a down economy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the headlines won't quite say that. But what I saw was that they're resilient. And you can see a little bit of this in the sense that Home Depot depends more on contractor sales than Lowe's. And during a good economy, everybody attacks Lowe's and says, why are you know, you need that, get more contractor mm -hmm. sales. You've got a weakness. This has to be fixed. But in the recession, Lowe's actually does better because Home Depot loses their contractor sales while home consumer sales do well. And so you'll see this shift if you follow them where Lowe's will be doing poorly relative to Depot in a good economy and uh, be doing better than Depot in a bad economy. And right. so it it's more difficult than these big pronouncements that say, hey, here it is. I think if you're a big company, you really have to look at your risk management. Yeah. What are you doing from a business standpoint to mitigate those risks and what black swans should you anticipate, even though that might be a contradiction in terms, but you know, the creativity with which you can fathom bad stuff happening and have a plan for them is a factor. I think if you're a small company, this sort of a disruption actually leveled the playing field for you a little bit. You mm -hmm. can now compete with the big guys because they're having problems and you are the smaller, more agile, more flexible player who can actually look bigger than you are. And that could be an opportunity in my way, as long as you are actually able to stay in business. Yeah. <laughs> no, details, details, details. I think you're right on with that because anytime there's a problem in the economy, opportunity also appears. Right. Whether it appears because people went out of business or whether it appears because it puts new pressure on price. So some clever thing you can do that gives people an equivalent value for less cost, you might be able to just step in. And so a down economy does create some very interesting economic change. I think. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a tremendous enthusiast for the idea of economic disaster is so healthy for us. On the other hand, I do think <laughs> pressure, um, it does you know, move innovation to have pressure come up and have pressure. Well, there is definitely the case that when times are hard, it is almost like you're going to the gym every day for twice mm -hmm. as long. Mm -hmm. It's hard. So you have to do more work. And it uh -huh. it is an exercise in ability to sustain yourself in difficult times that you didn't do when times are easier. So in some ways, you do get better fit if you survive it, right? <laughs> right. Well, and you know, and then if you think about opportunities that might come up during it, let's go back to COVID. Not like it's entirely past, but let's look at 2020 when COVID really hit. Everybody talked about what an opportunity this was for home delivery of food. So the thing you have to watch out for is that was the popular way of saying, look, there's opportunity here. What did we see? Uh, you know, yes, there were people were paying to have food delivered at home, but it turned out those markets aren't very good. And so every one of the home delivery people is struggling 
to maintain yeah, 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 what they yeah. built during the time. On the other hand, I look at a coffee shop just up the street from me, and the woman who runs a coffee shop closed for a couple of weeks and then reopened with limits on how many people could come in to get their coffee. Nobody could stay, but she maintained the business. She dropped staff, cut back, got the government support. But coming out of it, they are thriving. And I think what happened with them is because they survived, they achieved a new level of awareness in the community. So in the community around here, people started going, oh, Rose City. Yeah, they're open for coffee. Oh, yeah, I'll drop by Rose City. So I think that by doing that, they were able to establish kind of a new level. And the woman who owns the shop redid a lot of the interior. It's kind of a funky building. And so she figured out a really nice way to run it finally. And it's uh, coming out of it thriving. So it's tricky. You know, I, this is where I think there's no absolutes. But let me ask it back your way. So here's where I think it comes down in an interesting question is, should you invest in a major product effort during a recession. Actually linking it to what we were just talking about, disruptions sometimes create temporary markets. Mm-hmm. There's something that everybody suddenly needs now, but then when things go back to normal, they're not going to need as much of. So these temporary markets require agility for you to pounce like the lady in your story did. But then you have to remember that there's an on-ramp towards something else. That if you consider it as the end-all be-all, then you're going to be surprised when the market goes away. But if you use it as an on-ramp into something bigger, so if you can use this sort of a temporary thing as an on-ramp, then that's great. In terms of whether or not you want to do a big product development, also, you have to remember that many of your competition are unable to do anything because they're just trying to survive. And if the product cycles in your market are such that they require a bunch of pre-work for you to invest when they're not able to invest, means that you're going to have a head start when a new product comes out in a couple of years when you have it, and you're going to be a year or two ahead of competition. So absolutely. But then you better get that product right. That product cannot be really focused on that temporary market that went away. It needs to be on more proven market. You know, one of the other things I think that fights against people taking advantage of the opportunities in a recession are corporate expectations on public companies. Because if I'm running a small operation that I own, and uh, say a direct mail operation, And all of a sudden, people are overwhelmed in their email inboxes and their mailbox is empty. I might be able to step in for two or three years and make really good money offering direct mail to people. But it's not going to be forever, right? I mean, as you noted, it's a temporary thing. Well, if you're a small company, you can say, hey, you know what? I want to go get three years of that really good stuff. Right. I'm going to plan that it's not going to go on forever. Right. When you're a public company, the way the markets work is if you get a bump of 30% in revenue, then the markets come back to you and say, that's great, but what have you done for me lately? Right, exactly. Another 30% somewhere. And you can't just do that all the time. You know, so it makes a big difference between running a company that is run for private investors versus one that's run for public markets, where the pressure is entirely on growth. And you can't pursue some of these short-term advantages and say, hey, we have an opportunity. We're going to make an extra $10 billion for a couple of years. And then, you know what? We're going to back away from it. So three years from now, be prepared for our revenue to drop. Yeah, well, right. uh, you know, financial reporters don't have a three-year memory. Um, no, sure. no, no, no. They're going to leave you. They're going to leave you and come back when you're doing well again. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. so, so, so one other aspect of these difficulties is that it is hard on normal, regular people. And there are big swaths of the society that are, in fact, having difficulty. So it exposes the human aspect of business almost every time it does, because you have to think about those who aren't doing well for whatever reason. And I think that's another opportunity for a company is to really expose the human aspect 
and go after the human aspect of things in a more deliberate way. And, you know, you still have to have your heart in the right place. You can't fake that kind of stuff. But if you do it in a genuine, honest, good way, I think that bodes well as well. And it actually allows you to build and strengthen your brand at a time when other brands may be suffering. There was a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado, at King Supers, where there was a, one of those mass shootings and a bunch of people died mm-hmm. and you know, all the usual horror. It also is the store I grew up shop and I used to go there with my mom and shop. And so I followed it quite closely. And Kroger's, who owns King Supers, I don't know who they had managed through that, but it was brilliant. They did a really fantastic job of immediately closing the store, immediately working with the community, exposing their own human element in it. They supported the people who were displaced by the fact that the store had to close. They supported them really well. They did a lot of human things in terms of engaging with the community in Boulder for a debate, a discussion about what should happen to the store. Should the store even reopen? You know how it is, a mm, site mm, where you make mm. horror like that. There's good questions about, should you really reopen this? Or should it become something else entirely? And about a year after the bad stuff, they eventually reopened and did so really well and really thoughtfully. And it's one of these times where it's fun to watch a corporation and say, wow, there is somebody that did it right. They handled the human element and they did it very well. I mean, at the same time, Kroger still has some labor problems in Colorado, and they're not perfect Mm -hmm. company. Mm -hmm. Everybody, you know, there's always a little bit of chaos. On the other hand, in that one example, it's really worth paying attention to them and saying, boy, that was a very difficult thing. They handled it brilliantly. And my guess is that store, in fact, will continue to thrive. That's a great case study. Another thing that could be a segue Mm -hmm. is that because all these sorts of disruptions and hardships and pandemics, on the one hand, they expose the human element like we just talked about. On the other hand, they also expose the digital element because suddenly interactions in digital ways is easier than in person. So there lies another dilemma. How do you humanize your digital? And if you crack that code, if you are able to humanize your digital, you could have the best of both worlds. Should we talk inhuman digital for a little bit, though? (laughs) Well, there lies the challenge because digital has this allure that it solves a lot of problems and it's easier, better, faster, cheaper, but it comes with lots of complexity. So I'll I'll let you tee up that second topic you were going to talk about. (laughs) Topic number two today, there is an article in the uh, New York Times this week that says, title is The Rise of the Worker Productivity Score. And what these are is software on people's computers that tracks their activity on the computer down to the level of if the cursor is moving, then the person is paying attention and working. Oh, where the eyeballs are, really. Yeah, Yeah. where the eyeballs are, all these kinds of things. And um, now you might say, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard about these things. Now, the thing that's shocking in the article is this is being applied to CFOs. And it starts with a discussion of a woman who is a CFO, hired on at about 300000 a year is what she expected to be paid, but she is docked pay if her productivity score from that tracking software doesn't maintain a specific level. And so, for example, if she needs to call someone to discuss an issue, she has to tell the software what she's doing if she wants to get paid for that call. And so she discovered that she was not getting in her paycheck what she expected. And the reason was this invasive digital tracking. I I don't know where to start, Shaheen. I mean, this one seems like there are so many places we could wander into. But this is a fact, and it's out there far more than we expect. I think this wants to be a whole category of topic from now on. So (laughs) maybe we should talk about that too. But, But I think 
a big problem here is, again, the misconception that these digital tools are actually going to solve a problem when they can illuminate a fraction of the problem. Yes. In fact, the system seems to be imposing low productivity on this person by forcing her to basically get the system's permission to do what needs to be done. And that additional work is lack of productivity. And that's like right there, it is counterproductive. It's like doing the opposite of what it intends to do. The second part is that one problem again with the digital thing is that it is commoditized surveillance these days. You can gather data relatively cheaply. We've talked about all data coming from under lampposts. So if you don't measure the right data, it can lead you astray. But then how do you know what the right data is, right? If you're like in the old factory settings, people would punch a card, go to their station in a conveyor belt, mm-hmm. and products are passing by. And you know, and that's how it was regulated. So if you punched in and punched out, and that was enough proxy data to let the employer know how much to pay you and you'd signed up to that. I think with digital, the proxy data may or may not lead to the actual data you're trying to measure. And it can actually lead you astray. Absolutely. And let me jump in. Let's let's go ahead for listeners, make sure we, we're clear on what proxy means. A proxy is something that stands in for something else. So for example, you can have proxy voting where somebody is, is given the permission to cast your vote for you. Uh, in board things, stockholders do this all the time. But data has this tendency to become a proxy. You know, yes, people could say, well, they're only measuring keystrokes and things like that there. And the answer is they are. The problem is, what do you interpret that as? Exactly. It doesn't mean what you think it does. Yeah, yeah that's right. The idea that, you know, what your computer attention is, is an effective measure of whether you're working or not. That is where the proxy goes entirely wrong. And we do this all the time with proxies. You know, uh, if we look at profit and loss statements, profitability doesn't tell us in a given quarter doesn't tell us whether we did anything that builds for the future. All it tells us about, you know, it doesn't tell us we spent the money in that quarter wisely. It does tell us whether we had profit in that quarter. And that's an important fact, but it's not a proxy for whether or not the company is run smartly. You can't imply one from the other. And that's what's going on here with, I mean, things like this just, I mean, it makes me so furious (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it's so unfair to the individual who sees their job and sees what they need to do to deliver to the company effectiveness. And then the company uses a proxy like this that says, basically the message to the worker is, we don't want you to be effective and be smart and use your skills. We just want you to do this little thing we want you to do. And if you make us happy there, then we'll be happy. It does show an incredible, pardon me, I'm going to be brutal, stupidity among whoever the managers are that are using that system in that way. I, I think it's extraordinarily counterproductive. It's extraordinarily poisonous, and it actually will end up causing the very thing that they're trying to avoid. The other thing that these systems do is that they force people to game the system. You soon learn how the system operates and then you give it the data that it needs. So on the one hand, what gets measured gets done, as Tom Peter said once. Mm-hmm. But if you're measuring the wrong thing, then the wrong things get done. And we see that a lot, like you know, in a service organization. I remember in the old days where the service department was measured on how many items got escalated. So they were incented to not escalate problems. So now the customers aren't happy because their situation was glossed over and not escalated. So it really that it was not a proxy for customer satisfaction. It was not a proxy for 
quality systems running at customer sites. It was the opposite. And that had to change. Yeah. There's a story out of the medical world that at some point, and I think it was in New York City, they started using survival rates for, on heart surgery to evaluate surgeons. But what happened was instead of evaluating whether surgeons were effective in their work or not, what it ended up doing is it gave them incentive to not take hard cases. So right, people exactly. who were difficult surgeries simply didn't get treated and died, but they weren't included in the statistics. And that's the right. danger with these kinds of things. And the, the lamppost is you miss so much of reality. You know, what is it you want a surgeon to do? You want them to be brilliant at what they do. And you know that some people are not going to survive. That's just the reality when you get to heart surgery. But when you create a statistic that gives them an incentive to have everybody survive, all of a sudden they're no longer doing their job right. Right. Now, if you feel that your employees require this kind of surveillance and enforcement, then maybe you're not hiring right. Mm -hmm. Maybe your management practices are not right. Yeah, you may not be the appropriate leadership that would say, we respect your skills. So within your world, I want you to be good. And here's what I need from you. Right. It's really the logical equivalent of the supply cabinet being locked mm -hmm. because you're afraid people are going to steal supplies. Well, that is a cultural problem. That's a management problem. That's a hiring problem. You're not going to solve it like that. That's that. That really is what smacks as completely just puzzling in this case. How could you know, what were you thinking to think that this is going to work? I love that supply cabinet analogy. I do like that one a lot. But I think it also comes back to one of the trends that I really dislike in corporate culture these days is that efficiency has become more important than success. But under the idea that perhaps we can efficiency ourselves to success, but we can only efficiency ourselves to some financial health for a short period of time. We cannot be successful in the long run with efficiency programs. They're short-term things that sometimes have to be done. This reminds me of an efficiency obsession gone astray, right? That these people, you know, somehow believe that making sure their people, their employees are entering a lot of keystrokes is efficient. Right. Sure, their money is being used efficiently. And I just think it's it's bad. It, it actually, I was reminded too, in a stray way of a joke I saw this week about uh, the three phases of work, which is the first phase is we go, wow, I'm in the meeting. That's <laughs> at work, you know? And the second one is, oh, I'm leading the meeting. And the third phase is, boy, if I don't ever have to go to another meeting, I'll be happy. <laughs> um, you know, and that's somebody who really understands what does it take to succeed. Yeah. <laughs> so another, another topic that came up was the email that you received. Uh, I think somebody was inviting you to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this, was, this was, you know, now that, now that I'm clearly this professor teaching a lot, I'm getting a lot of emails from ed tech companies wanting me to offer me their latest uh, gizmos and gadgets or whatever. And so um, this, I, I mean, I want to raise this as a question of, is this a worst practice? I don't know. But here's what I got. I got an email and it starts off with, as an educator, you know that marketing changes rapidly. Wow. And, you know, I can respond to this on so many levels. I mean, my first response is, no, it doesn't. Um, marketing <laughs> deals with, as Bill Burnbeck observed, basically the eternal realities of humanity. And those don't really change. You know, we're all trying to survive. We want to have lives that are productive. We want to, you know, support fam. I mean, the fundamentals don't change. You know, the trappings of marketing might change, but the fundamentals don't. Yeah. So, you know, it's but it's like, God, I mean, it sucks people in. I mean, what are they doing here? So tell me, is this a worth <laughs> practice? I think this is a great example because the mistake is such a rookie mistake that you have to say, 
oh, maybe there's some thought behind it. <laughs> and the thought behind it is basically the Nigerian prince spam email that mm-hmm. intentionally has grammatical and spelling mistakes to weed out those who would notice them because you're obviously not our target market. <laughs> if you're smart enough to notice the spelling errors, then you're not going to be good for me. Yeah. So if as an educator, you know that marketing is changing always, then you are my customer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did think about this phrase and I, I hate them. Sorry, educators, but I do have to say this, that there is a strange way in which I'm, it, it's like, is this saying educators aren't very smart? You know, <laughs> that's, that's another angle, right? Right. right. <laughs> you know, if you're an educator, you're so disconnected from reality that you believe marketing changes rapidly. That's um, right. That's right. Fortunately, there's a lot of educators out there that are definitely not that uh, distracted from reality. Right. So now you can imagine they're sitting in a meeting saying, who in our target audience might think that marketing is changing all the time? Ah, those are the educators. <laughs> I see educators. That's what we'll do, you know. No, I think it's terrible and, and for all the right reasons. But, you know, in these cases, whether or not it's a good or you know, worst or best practice. Yeah, I would love to see how this campaign is doing for them. You know, I'm I'm prepared to be surprised. I'm prepared for them to say, you know what? Look at all these results. We are getting responses, and now I don't like it. I think these are exactly the kinds of marketing practices that give marketing a bad name. To me, marketing is about matching real capabilities with real needs and not manipulating people into solutions that they don't need. And campaigns like this really feel like they're the latter. So I don't like it from that standpoint. To take a cynics approach, though, I'll suggest that what they may have tapped into is that a lot of people who teach, I mean, we're, uh, you know, it's hard. And we get this constant thread of this is hard and that is hard. And I've had a, you know, heard from a fair number of professors who, uh, you know, will jump onto a bandwagon just because it's what they believe the students are going to want to hear from them. Not because they know that that's the right thing to teach for business, not because they know that in doing so, they'll make their students more successful, but because by doing it, it fits, it's like it offers the value to them within their really tiny space. And in that sense, it is kind of valid marketing because you're offering this person something that's of value to them. You and I get to step back to a distance and say, wait a minute. That is so misleadingly wrong, it damages their students, but to that person within that space. And this is one of the real ethical quandaries, I think, in marketing, is that mm. you can appeal to somebody within their space and then be doing the wrong thing overall. I'll say I ran into this challenge in advertising because the thing that makes the advertising manager at the company happy is very often not the thing the company needs. Well, you know, I think situations like that really do not seem to be something that marketing should be focused on. If your target audience doesn't perceive a need, then your job is to establish why that need is real. I think that anytime you have to manipulate someone to do something, that's not marketing, you know? I can imagine there might be some legit, I mean, where my head goes is like kindergarten. Okay, so, you know, with kids that size, sometimes you do have to coax them and Mm-hmm. And and even that, I think, ethically is a bit of a challenge, but then you gloss over it and because the end justifies the means and they do need to learn. And But when you talk about like real companies talking to real customers, I don't think there's ever a situation where the end justifies the means like that. I think you the ethics of marketing are mandatory in my mind. And if you don't have sufficient creativity and sufficient depth of the understanding of what customers need and what the product can provide, 
then you're not a good marketing person in my view. I think there's truth in that. I think the difficult, I mean, and I don't know what the right answers are. The difficulty I ran into, and I was the one who never would go down that path of, oh, that's what you think? Okay, well, we'll just do what you want. I'm uh, not known for being the guy that would just say, okay, good, good. We'll just go do that. But I think what happened is that, for example, a marketing manager's comp plan might be badly affected by doing the right marketing. And so Mm -hmm. agency, you're coming into a situation that's loaded against doing the thing the customer needs by that company's own management approach. I began to really come to comprehend that the only people looking at the totality of a company's success are in the C-suite because everybody else is focused by them on these smaller areas and they lose track of what the C-suite is. So for my work, we generally only got entry to a company through vice president of marketing and above. We very rarely were able to get in at a director level, and that would be all we needed. You know, I don't mind the disagreement. You know, that happens occasionally in in our world, too, where the client sees a different path as suitable for them. We disagree. I think our track record is pretty good that more often than not, we were proven right two years later, you know, three years later. But at the moment, it's hard to really tell. I mean, sure, maybe you're right. Maybe that's the way to do it and we just see it differently. Go forth and try it. That's okay. You're going to do it without us, but I wish you success. You know, and, and if they are successful going their way, that's fine. They got it right. We got it wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that we've seen a lot more of these cases than they have, chances are that is borne out usually. Historically, I could look at you know, things we lost on that basis. And they, they generally, I don't know, actually, I can't even tell you one that did succeed by taking the other path. Yeah, exactly. I was being but nice on the just other in hand, case. <laughs> on the other hand, I also found you can't fight those battles. So it, it just is a, you know, I mean, a lot of times you can't win the battle. Right. But my point is that not winning the battle is okay for me because the possibility that they may be right exists. The odds aren't. But sure, if you want to go down that path, go. And in some parameters, it really doesn't make any difference. It's more a matter of style than a matter of correctness. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you like this kind of a thing and, you know, the market tends to like that other kind of thing, that's fine. You're not going to lose all of the market. You lose a little bit. And Which is all true, except we were in measurable marketing where, you know, the expectation we were bidding on. Was, <laughs> okay, exactly. How many of these are you going to sell? And, right, um, right, you know, right, so I was, I mean, in those cases, what I'd say, oh no, that's not going to work. Uh, we, right, even, right. even before I started my agency, we had one client we went into major multinational and we went in and they said, well, this is what we want to do. And we said, well, here's the way this stuff works. Da, 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 da. And he said, but you know, you're not going to be able to achieve that because it's just not going to work because you're too broadly distributed. So you're not going to be able to get enough on air sales. On the other hand, it could work for your stuff at retail. Da, da, da. And they said, no. No, we want to get all those on-air sales and we want to hire you anyway. And the company took it. And of course, they failed because there was no way from the beginning that the project had sanity to it. You know, as usual, this topic became a lot bigger than I thought it would be because (laughs) it just like permeates like that. So now we're talking about ethics and mediocrity and best practices and worst practices and why. So maybe we will focus on this a little bit in our off time and see if we can crystallize it a bit more. Agree. But I let's conclude ethics, for now, huh? Yeah, ethics is a big topic. And yeah, let's conclude for now. I think that I appreciate the patience of our listeners as we've wandered afield. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Really appreciate you being there and look forward to the next episode. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Shane. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.